CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Here we go. It's time for another Political Rewind. Thanks for joining us today. Um, If you're listening to us in real time, it's uh, October 1st, and the reason I mention that is today is Jimmy Carter's 96th birthday, and he is still going strong. The president and Mrs. Carter uh, are down in Plains, where they've been sheltering in place, Um, and we just wanted to give them a shout-out on his 96th birthday, a remarkable Georgian, a remarkable man of the world. Uh, a, a little bit later today, this morning, I'm going to be uh, recording for, for Political Rewind an interview with John Alter, Jonathan Alter, the great political analyst. He's got a brand new biography of Carter out, and we'll play that show for you at some point in the next couple of weeks. And it's just great to be able to talk to John on uh, the day that Carter turns 96. So happy birthday, uh, President Carter. Uh, to Kevin Riley is uh, with me today. Um, Kevin is not in a jubilant mood. There's black crepe hanging from the mantelpiece of his fireplace. He himself is dressed in all black. His Cleveland Indians last night blew what was a sure victory. The Indians blew their game last night the way President Trump blew the question about whether he condemns white supremacy in the debate the night before, Kevin. <laughs> Well, I don't know if I'd go quite that far, Bill, but uh, luckily I'm here this morning, and Thursday is always my favorite day of the week because of this show. So I think I'm going to soldier on, and then uh, as we prepared for the show, I found that one of our uh, guests is a Yankees fan. So I've just got to take my medicine and look forward to spring training. (laughs) (laughs) That Yankees fan is Joel Alvarado. Joel is a political consultant. He's uh, with uh, Ohio River South, which is a government uh, relations firm, but also does political consultancy work. Uh, Joel, we're really glad to have you back on the show. It's been a while. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Bill, for the invitation. Uh, I just want to wish everyone a a happy Hispanic Heritage Month. Um, And I just want to tell Kevin, look, I lived through the uh, Dave Winfield, Ricky Henderson, Don Madeline days as a Yankee. So trust me, I know the pain you feel. No comment. (laughs) We're also joined. We're also joined today by Brenda Lopez, former state representative uh, Brenda Lopez, uh, who uh, was a representative out in Gwinnett County, Democratic rep, ran for the 7th District Democratic nomination. And Brenda, we're so happy to have you back. It's been a while since you've been here as well. And you said that uh, since the uh, primaries, you have just found time to breathe a little bit. Congratulations. Good for you. That's right. I'm super excited to be back, Bill. I missed you. I, I truly did miss the program, and I'm always excited to be here and on, on NPR. Brenda Lopez Romero, thank you so much. And we're joined once again by another of our uh, panelists who's off, often here and we haven't seen for a while, Chuck Cook. Charles Cook is one of the top immigration lawyers, I say in the Southeast, but the reality is Chuck Cook has a reputation around the United States as one of the leading immigration attorneys. And we're going to, in a little while, Chuck, uh, mention that you have added to that reputation by winning a very big case. In fact, why don't you go ahead and tell us about the case that was just decided uh, as we begin our conversation today? 
Well, Bill, first, thanks for having me back. It's wonderful to be on the show with all these wonderful folks. It's always a delight to be here. Uh, yes, late last night, a federal district court judge in Washington, D.C. ruled uh, that uh, 9,000 individuals who were winners of what we call the diversity lottery uh, are able to continue to get their green card beyond the fiscal year, which ended last night, uh, for the first time. Uh, this is a direct result of President Trump shutting down legal immigration worldwide uh, on uh, April 23rd. Uh, and these folks have been hanging in limbo, waiting, waiting to get their visas and coming to America. And so, you know, like, like a lot of lawyers, we had to sue the president. And uh, it was great, it's great to win and to, to help these folks uh, hopefully uh, achieve the American dream here. So does this uh, have an impact on the diversity lottery moving forward, or does the case only relate to the 9,000 who have been in limbo? Uh, well, it moves forward. You know, it's a really good point because the new diversity lottery, which we call DV 2021, begins today. Uh, and we don't know if the systemic reasons that we won, the judge gave us the victory, uh, will be applied to DV 2021 or we'll have to sue them again. Uh, we're we're going to hopefully find that out in the next couple of days. So uh, we're just excited to uh, once again enable uh, get the legal immigration system beginning to work. Well, congratulations on that. You know, um, one of the things we wanted to do today with uh, this terrific panel is uh, talk a bit about the uh, Hispanic vote, the Latino vote. We're in the middle of a National Hispanic Heritage Month that actually runs from September 15th to October 15th every year. And of course, it recognizes the contributions and influence of Hispanic Americans on culture of the United States. And it's important to point out that uh, Hispanics, Latinos are a growing influence in this country. Uh, the uh, Amelia Brock was looking at numbers from the Pew Research Center and uh, discovered that this year, a record 32 million Latinos are uh, projected to be eligible to vote in the November elections, which means that for the first time, they exceed the number of black eligible voters uh, in an upcoming election. The uh, Hispanic and Latinx communities are among the fastest growing in the nation. Uh, they're a, a hugely important demographic, increasingly for many candidates in the state of Georgia. And uh, so we want to start talking a bit ab about just that. Um, but let me, if I can, Kevin, I'll start with you, and then I want to get Brenda and Joel in here as quickly as possible. You know, I was interested in the fact that, first of all, it's very important to say that when you talk about Hispanic, Latinx uh, voters, we got to be very careful that we don't somehow think that this is a homogenous group of people. This is a very diverse group of people with vastly different interests in politics, in culture, uh, representing many countries. Uh, and so I want to be careful about that. That said, it is interesting, Kevin, that um, the Hispanic vote tends to be, while the black vote tends to be more democratic, the Hispanic vote is much more diverse than that. And I was fascinated by the fact that a Telemundo poll uh, that they took after the uh, debate the other night showed that 66% of uh, Spanish-speaking people thought that Donald Trump won the debate. That certainly tells us, Kevin, this is not a homogenous community. 
Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right about that, Bill. You know, there are some arguments because I don't think that poll was super scientific. Yeah. It's one of those things mm-hmm. that network does in the aftermath yeah. of, of something like that. But all of that said, um, uh, Amelia Brock, your senior producer, shared uh, the statistics uh, with with me in advance of the show. And the more you dig into them, you find out, yes, this is not a monolithic group. Don't make the mistake of thinking one or two words will describe them. And I know we're going to get into that today, but uh, it's going to be a little more complicated to get these votes than I think uh, a lot of people realize, and probably a lot of politicians even realize who are unfamiliar with the group. Um, the poll may not have been uh, uh, terribly scientific, it, 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 but it is worth pointing out. It's, it, it at least makes this, it makes this symbolic point, Brenda, that it's a mistake to assume that minority voters in this country tend to vote Democratic. That is not necessarily true of the Latinx and the Hispanic communities, is it, Brenda? Well, I would definitely agree that um, it's not true that we're monolithic. We have um, a cross-section of different races, ethnic groups, um, nationalities, of course, a lot of different levels of class, which I think is very relevant, including also what sort of generation in immigration you are. There's folks that have never migrated to this country that had just always been in these territories. Um, and some, like myself, that were you know, that are foreign-born and naturalized. So we have everything in between, right? And so that's what that uh, Twitter survey shows, right? But let's just remember it was a Twitter survey. Um, I don't think that the proportion of um, the percentage of what was considered a win um, is actually reflective of even the Latinx community as a whole. Um, but it isn't a good indication that um, we're most definitely not monolithic and that candidates at all levels, not obviously just the presidential level, but even at the local level, really have to learn how to connect with their localized communities, which particularly at district levels, might be a little bit more homogenous than, than we will have at the national level. Ah, a, a really good point to make there. Joel, uh, so here's just a couple of uh, figures. Um, Latinos make up about 9.8% of Georgia's total population, mm-hmm. uh, but um, about 37% of the Latinx community is actually eligible uh, to vote in the state. So it's a, it's, it, this is an ongoing problem that the communities have had, which is, is growing the voter rolls so that Hispanics and Latinos can have a much bigger impact on the election, right? Right. Uh, but before I even go into that, um, Bill, what I want to say is that there, there needs to be an acknowledgement beyond Hispanic Heritage Month about the politicization of the Latino voter and recognizing that in the Southeast, we got to discontinue having a binary conversation that's black and white and recognize that Latinos need to be a part of the political conversation and that our needs and concerns need to be met by both parties. And so going back to what you were talking about before, Bill, the um, we are diverse. I mean, Brenda is Mexican-American. I'm Puerto Rican. I mean, we have much love for one another, but to assume that Brenda and I are the same because our skin is brown I mean, it does us a disservice as human beings and our backgrounds and, and our stories and our narratives, right? And I would also say that one cannot discount um, the importance of economics and social conservatism in regards to political thinking of Latinos, which is why some may be um, progressive on some issues, but they may be very conservative on others, and, and, and that, can, that could lead to sort of 
this uh, diversity of political thought that exists within our community. So I think my takeaway would be do po politicians and political parties do a better job of understanding who we are and appreciate our diversity and come to us with real ideas and real solutions about what we need to better our community. So, Joe, let me stick with you uh, on this and then throw it to everybody else. What, how are the Hispanic and Latinx communities being uh, addressed by candidates in the 2020 cycle? And, and I, I leave that door wide open for you to talk about it, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whether it's uh, Senate candidates or House candidates here in Georgia. Just start that conversation with us and we'll give everybody a shot at it. Absolutely. What... What I see is everything happens in cycles. So, of course, everybody starts to feel um, interested in Latinos during Hispanic Heritage Month. And all of a sudden, we, we get propped up and people want to show their bona fides regarding what they are doing in our respective communities. I'm very curious as to what happens on October 16th, the day after, or November 4th, mm -hmm. the day after the election, where we get the same type of interest and support. That's what I'm looking for, Bill. I'm looking for a sustained commitment to our to our community beyond an election cycle. I want to know that you care about my interests wholeheartedly. And just for the record, just to be clear, I'm with Latinos for Biden. I um, my, my co-chair is the Honorable uh, Brenda Lopez Romero. So I'm, you know, you know, I'm a, I'm a staunch Democrat, and you know that I'm on 100% for Biden. But at the same time. I'm going to hold my party and others accountable to make sure that my needs are met and my community's needs are met. All right. Um, I'm going to take our first break of the show today. For, if you've been listening this week, you, you know that we said that we're in the middle of a pledge drive here at uh, GPB Radio and that uh, yesterday, because of the presidential debate the day before, as we were previewing the debate, uh, we were freed up of having to take any pledge breaks at all. Well, moving ahead for the rest of the pledge drive, we're only going to be asked to take one pledge break in the middle of the show, which is really wonderful because our bosses recognize that you want to hear what's going on in politics, especially with the election a little more than a month away. So with all that in mind, we are going to pause for a pledge break right now, but we're going to come back and continue the entire rest of the show here on Political Rewind. Here's how you can help us stay on the air at GPB Radio. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Um, welcome back to Political Rewind. Um, uh, Kevin Riley, I, my partner on Thursdays, I think I neglected in my concerns for your feelings about the Indians losing to remind everybody, you're not just anybody, Kevin. You're the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And uh, you had a fascinating editorial page uh, today. At the top of your editorial page, uh, you basically had a paragraph that said something about the presidential debate. Here's what we learned and I would say a good three-fifths of the rest of that page was blank. Very bold, Kevin. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, we are, talked about what should be said about that debate, and uh, when you come right down to it, I don't think there's much uh, that could be said in terms of its value for voters. And so, uh, uh, hopefully, cost, cost things less, will improve. Cost less. Yeah, save money, Brenda, on newsprint for that for that page. Brenda, let's move uh, right here with Brenda Lopez, uh, Romero, uh, uh, Joel Alvarado, and Chuck Cook are with us. Brenda, uh, you and Joel are working with the uh, Biden campaign here, but there have been a lot of concerns expressed about whether the Biden campaign nationally is doing what it needs to do to reach out to win Hispanic and Latino votes. Sure. And I will actually kind of uh, make it more holistic from the original conversation before we went to break where generally I would say, and I'm going to be specific to Georgia, right, because this is where I engage in politics. And so the quick answer is no. No candidate or once elected has been doing enough to reach out and do real engagement and real policy and law for the Latino and Latinx community. That's just a fact. Um, now, there's a difference, of course, in what um, most candidates primarily, primarily, not always, affiliated with the Democratic Party, tend to be generally more favorable to um, the needs and concerns of um, diverse communities as a whole, which includes the Latino community. Now, in terms specifically of the Biden campaign, um, you know, I, I agree with Joel. I, I am very I'm supportive of the uh, president. And obviously, as we just said, you know, there was nothing to be said about the counterpart at that so-called debate. And so, of course, that's um, who... I'm supporting and who we're engaging the Latino community to um, support. But can there always, uh, can more be done? Absolutely. Um, there needs to be obviously more on the ground, more localized staff, for example, here in Georgia. That's always one of my concerns where they come and bring people from California or from New York to engage the Latino community here in Georgia. And that's really problematic because of what we said, right? We're very different. Um, I want to, Joel, I want to get you back in, but but Chuck, I want to jump to something, uh, an area of this whole conversation where I think you probably can provide us some uh, additional insight. Um, uh, the Pew Research Center uh, did, did a study uh, just last, in, in July, just toward the end of July, and asked a lot of questions about how Latinos feel about their place in America. And, and I, I guess the results... Of some of the top lines on it are not surprising, but they are interesting. Um, here's the headline. Immigrant Latinos, a community you work with, have more concerns about their place in America with Trump as president than do the U.S. board. So among all Hispanics, it's an even split. 47 to 48 uh, percent are confident about their place in America. But if you're foreign born, only 41 percent say that they are confident about having a good place in America. 52% say they are not. Also, this points, this suggests that um, 72% of uh, the uh, foreign-born uh, immigrants uh, tend to lean Republican rather than Democratic. So talk about what you see in the immigrant community and its political uh, affiliations and interests. None of that surprises me, Bill. Um, it's... Uh... The numbers are fascinating, uh, but not surprising, because think about this. If you are constantly attacked because of your national origin, you are constantly talked down to because of how you looked, it, w it not only reflects in your self-esteem, but it reflects in what you think the possibility is for the future here. Um, when you're told that you come from a country full of rapists, um, how are you supposed to react to that? Now, the interesting thing is we have the Pew study from 2020. 
I would love to see the Pew 20, the, the Pew study from 1920. Uh, and how did the immigrants that were coming in then think? And I, and given the fact that the same anti-immigration rhetoric was rising in the, in the late teens and 1920s, I would suspect that you would see the same feelings among the Italian uh, uh, immigrants, among Irish immigrants, among German immigrants coming during that time. So this is nothing new. We just happen to be living during this time. Um, the other thing is, you point out a big chunk of, of Latinos lean Republican. Well, if Republicans, if that party even existed anymore, which I don't think it actually does, but if it did, they talk about, you know, they're pro-family. Great. Uh, they're pro-religion. Great. Uh, they're anti-abortion. Well, you just described most Latinos that I know. Um, so it's not surprising. And if, if the, the former Republican Party would actually talk to Latinos instead of talking down to Latinos, they could actually get a lot more votes for their candidates. But that's clearly not happening now, either at the presidential level or even at the state level. Although I think there are a number of Republican uh, leaders in our state that definitely understand this. They just aren't doing it. I'm going to jump in here, Bill, because I want to get back to something that Joel said, because I'm interested in his insights. You made sort of a reference to the social conservatism <laughs> among Latinos. And again, uh, different uh, the, the community is not a monolith, and there are different points of view within it. But talk about that a little bit, because I do think that so many Americans, uh, 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 particularly white Americans, have this perception of, of of the way Latinos may think or believe based on uh, when certain issues get in the news, like immigration. But expand on that a little bit, Joel, and, and just kind of offer some of the insight around that, the social issues. Right. I think Charles alluded to it already, but Again, there are certain um, there are certain value propositions that the Republican Party espouses that resonates profoundly with Latinos. The idea of family, the idea of community, the idea of religion being the center of sort of the community nexus, um, the idea of being uh, being uh, being pro-life. Uh, you know, the idea of of you know, lifting yourself up on your own bootstraps, you know, of working hard and trying to um, build something for yourself that you can leave for your family moving forward. Um, in a, um, it's interesting enough, uh, Kevin, in a conversation that we had um, in a podcast I'm a part of called Los Politicos, which we've had uh, Brenda on as a guest, we talked about that because it's myself, uh, Chris Valera, who's a reformed Republican, and Senator-elect Jason Anabicarte, we all um, talk about this issue, and Jason makes me fully aware of sort of the Republican um, appeal to Latinos. You know, I'm from New York City. I'm born and bred blue. I'm all a die blue, right? But I think it has become important to me to understand the full political spectrum of Latinos. Why do some Latinos favor um, Republican and Republican ideology when um, I see uh, a president who's willing to shout out a white supremacist group at a debate. And when I see a president who is locking up children um, that look like my, my son or my nephew or someone in my family on the border. So I, I don't understand, but I'm trying to get to a place where I can understand, Kevin. So I just want to add to that, 
the issue of um, why we need to know the context, right? Generationally, right? Once kids, um, well, I, I think it's like they're born here, um, that nexus, particularly to the religious um, aspect or beliefs that sometimes the Republican Party might have some sort of um, relationship with the Latino community really lessens as you have new generations. Once you get to the second, third, fourth generation where that religious affiliation isn't as closely connected, you definitely see that break. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is that even for those individuals that are still very close to their religious identity, um, have seen the reality that, you know, the, even if the Republican Party that once existed, as Chuck said, um, once existed, it doesn't exist anymore. When we talk about family values, but yet we have elected officials at municipal levels that are trying to do away with multi-generational housing, right? When, when you have the fact that you see that actually falling in line with your religious values um, isn't exactly what you're doing in your own home. Um, I'm talking about especially the candidate or elected official. So, you know, there's that true that might have been true at one sense, but right now, especially where the Republican Party stands today and their uh, standard bearer, that's just not where, where we are. And the Latino community sees that that's just the reality. If I could jump in there, uh, uh, Brenda. So uh, just... So a very straightforward question. We've got this big uh, issue in the presidential election around appointing a, a new Supreme Court justice. And the major issue there is abortion. Meanwhile, you have Joe Biden, who's, who's a Catholic. So, I mean, talk about that, how Latinos see those two choices that they have. Well, I would say that um, the issue is not necessarily just abortion. Um, when we have concerns with the um, easy judicial nominee, quite frankly, that likely will come out out of um, out of a, a Trump um, a nomination, is going to do away with a lot of civil rights, women's rights generally, right? The issues with, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg as that came out was not solely an issue of having access to healthcare through, through access to abortion, but it was also being able to get a credit card in your own name. It was actually not being fired because you were pregnant and wanted to keep your pregnancy. These are the issues that are at stake at the Supreme Court, and that is what we have to focus on. I think that it, it minimizes how important the next judicial nomination is going to be by focusing it solely on abortion. And I think that that's something that needs to be communicated to, to everybody in the United States, not just the Latino community. Chuck Cook, jump in. You know, one of the, one of the things that you also see is, uh, and I don't think we pay enough attention to this here in Georgia, because so many of our Latinos in our state are from uh, Central and North America. So they're, they're Mexican, they're Central Americans. Go into Florida, and a large chunk of the Latinos there are from Cuba and Venezuela, uh, and Nicaragua. And they come from a very different political environment. And that politics, where, where they came from, what they saw happen to their country, uh, they think that could happen here. And so that, re that reflects in their politics. So you see a much bigger lean Republican in Florida because they think that Biden is somehow going to become Castro, um, uh, and they don't think Trump is, which is you know, some people would argue that they're the same thing, uh, but it's because of where they're from that also shapes their views. Uh, and so it's, I just find it fascinating that uh, that most Americans don't understand that Latinos are just Americans, that we're all diverse uh, and we are shaped by both our past, 
by our education, by our religion. Um, and it's just funny that political parties don't seem to understand this and don't know how to do the outreach necessary to attract those voters uh, all the time. Uh, we got to get to a very quick break in a minute, but I, I want to throw out one more p- uh, data set uh, it, that will be talking about just a little bit how to change these figures uh, in the uh, months and years ahead. According to the Georgia Secretary of State's election division, voter registration statistics as of November 1st, 2016, show that just 127,000 Latinos are registered to vote statewide, and that overall Latinos make up only 2.3% of the state's 5.4 million registered Voters, And that compares to the 30 percent of registered voters who are black. Um, so what's going on here? And, and to increase the power of the Latino Hispanic vote, uh, we got to get those numbers up. Let's talk about what's involved in doing that. We're going to take a very quick break and be right back. So, Joel Alvarado, we start the show by saying that for the first time in the 2020 election, there are more Latinos and Hispanics eligible to vote nationwide than African-Americans. But the Mm -hmm. most but in 2016, just 40 years ago, Hispanics and Latinos in Georgia made up only 2.3 percent of the state's registered voters. What's wrong with that picture and what do you do to increase voter participation to have the power that the community needs to have to make strides in Georgia? You know, Bill, it's an interesting question. And what what immediately hit my mind is that when a question like that is positive, they, you know, the, the reaction is, well, what is the Latino not doing or doing to cause that phenomenon to occur? And I would maybe turn it around and say, well, what are the um, candidates and parties not doing to to compel Latinos to see themselves as a part of the political discussions that are being had in Georgia. And can can are the parties doing everything they they possibly can to to um, encourage Latinos to be a part of the political process, not just as as voters, but as volunteers, as working on campaigns, as candidates. I mean, Bill, let me give you a perfect example. And it breaks my heart. I was I'm old enough where I was there 2003, the start of the Georgia General Assembly, and that was a phenomenal day because we had three Latinos um, become members of the Georgia General Assembly: Pedro Marin, who's still there, um, Sanza Maripa, and David Casa. Well, in 2021, Bill, we're going to have three Latinos in the Georgia General Assembly. Jason Alvarez said. Uh, Zuma Lopez and Pedro Marin. Um, that is a problem, right? Uh, we need we need to um, at the same time within our community, we need to understand that if we want to see policy changing, ch- policy changing to benefit our community, we have to be part of the change process, and that means we need to get out and run and run. We need to we need to show our face, and we need to become candidates, and we need to become elected officials. And let me just say this real quick. Bill, I just want to thank Brenda for running for the congressional seat, because as I told her before on our show, her doing so made a young Latina or a young woman of color realize that they, too, can represent Georgia in that capacity. So I just want to take this moment to thank you for doing that, because it's profoundly important to the politicization of the Latino community in Georgia. 
Well, I appreciate that, but I do want to clear up something about the numbers. Um, you gave that number from 2016. So in just four years, I would say slightly under four years, the, that Latino um, registered voter has increased to 250,000 voters. So we actually increased in four years, 100,000 registered voters. And what I will say is true, as um, as Juan said, um, it has not been due to the parties of uh, either parties. It has not been due to any of the most of the candidates, I would say, a, a good probably 99% of them. It has been um, based on both just individuals being tired of what has happened under the Trump administration in collaboration with a lot of nonprofit organizations that are doing heavy work registering uh, voters. And so now we have to get to that second step because one thing is to register voters. The other thing is we've got to get folks to turn out. And, um, and, and that is the work that needs to continue happening, both from the nonprofit organization side, but also, as, as we've been mentioning, from the party and kind of the powers that be structure. So that, the, but what I do remind folks that now with the 250,000 registered Latinos, remember, we're going to win this state or lose this state by a fraction of a percentage. We, we lost last election 2018, the Abrams campaign, by 50,000 votes. The Latino community can, in fact, determine who wins and who loses in this state. Amen. You know, one of the things that uh, it hasn't been said directly, Brenda, in our conversation is that you were the first Latina ever elected to the Georgia General Assembly. And so that gives you, I mean, you know, that, that role of being a first is so important. Um, so, I mean, what would you, what do you say to people who are interested in politics, especially, you know, Joel referenced young women uh, who who would be interested? I mean, what's your advice? Are, are, there, are there enough of them out there? Are, they, are, are there people just waiting to, to have this influence that you believe uh, Latinos should have? Listen, the, the, the folks are out there. It's a matter of us engaging them and motivating, however that is. So in the four years that I was um, in, 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 in session and with the congressional campaign, I personally had over 50 uh, legislative aides and um, campaign fellows work with me. They were all predominantly young, first-generation college students. The majority of them were, were Latino, but then uh, we had just about every other nationality or countries of origin backgrounds that they came from. And um, and you know what? Like I, I didn't do anything special. I was just there and made myself available and went to talk to them at their school. I will tell you a really quick funny story. When I had my first legislative eight legislative aides, I had everyone, including Democrats, um, Democrat elected officials, tell me where I found them. Like I had to go look for them under some rock. And I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? You know, they're in college. We have Georgia State and Georgia Tech right down the road. That's where they are. Right? And, and so it's just a matter of having someone actually care um, and give a give a damn, quite frankly, um, to actually engage folks. Chuck, Chuck, jump in. Well, I will. I will tell you, I have actually employed two of Brenda's former interns uh, at my office, uh, one of whom is in law school today. Uh, she, after working here, she still wanted to go to law school. I don't understand why that was the case, but uh, she, she, Brenda's an extraordinary example for folks. But what a lot of folks don't understand, you said, yes, there's 37%, you know, this huge number of Latinos that, that live in the state, but the vast majority of them are new immigrants. They, this, the vast majority are first generation. Their kids are now in their early 20s, in their late teens. So we, we're not seeing the voting age and the voting ability yet because many of them are still undocumented. 
The numbers show it about a half a million of the Latinos in Georgia are undocumented. Um, and so they're not going to have the power to vote. They're not going to have the power to naturalize. But there's still at least 100,000 Latinos in Georgia that are permanent residents eligible for naturalization that, that haven't naturalized. One and two, the Trump administration slow walked naturalization here in Georgia and around the United States, especially of Latinos. Uh, and they had to get sued over that. And they, they're still getting sued over that every day. So it's not just that Latinos aren't voting. It's not just that they're not citizens. It's that the system is actively working against them to become involved in the political process. Uh, Chuck, while the ball's in your court, before I go to Joel, uh, uh, you just talked about naturalization. There's another case uh, that's worth pointing out today. This wasn't one that I don't think you were involved with. Nevertheless, the uh, uh, Trump administration wanted to increase naturalization fees for some extravagant uh, percentage. What up, up from what are the numbers here? Well, they, they wanted to increase the filing fee. Keep in mind, the immigration service yes. is fee funded. So they wanted to increase it by 80 percent. Uh, it's currently yeah. seven hundred and twenty five dollars. And they wanted to increase that to $1,160 just for the privilege of applying for naturalization in the United States. And then being stuck in a line that the local immigration office estimates to be between 11 and 26 months to become a U.S. citizen. It's not exactly the kind of service you'd pay $1,160 for. But that fee rule was struck down also yesterday by a different federal court judge uh, because they didn't follow the rules when they enacted it. Even before All the right. Thank you for filling us in on that. Because we already had one fee increase during this administration. And even prior <laughs> to that fee increase, um, naturalizations took under six months. And six months was top um, yep. before we came into this administration. So, you know, you're getting charged more for even worse service. <laughs> I would say, Bill, that um, we're, we are, though, feeling the impact of Latinos becoming politically engaged. Think about Cobb and Gwinnett County. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about the conversation you were having about Cobb and Gwinnett County four years ago, eight years ago, right? Think about the conversations you're going to have today about Cobb County. I mean, Bill, do you realize that there's a possibility that if everything goes well, uh, on November 3rd, all the five largest counties in Georgia could be ran by an African-American? So if Lisa Cupid wins in Cobb and then Nicola Love Hendrickson wins in Gwinnett, then you already have you already have Pitts, Turner, and, and you have Thurman. I mean, think about what that means about for Georgia. And let's not let's not fool ourselves to think that Latinos didn't play a role in the transference of power in those counties, especially in Cobb and Gwinnett. Uh, Joel, those are kind of uh, uh optimistic predictions, but what do you really think is going to happen? Do you really think that the, those counties will turn in the directions that you see? I, mean, I was thinking living in Winnet County, um, Winnet, Winnet for sure. I mean, we, we are taking over this county at the commission level, and obviously we already have the majority of delegation, and we're going to flip a couple more seats this election cycle. Yeah, definitely feel confident about Winnet. Cobb, of course, is, um, is going to be a, a little harder. But what the data shows us is that Cobb has gone blue during um, at least the past two, I would say, at least of one or two presidential election cycles. And in 2018, it went blue. 
So I feel pretty confident that the change is occurring there. I think um, Cupid will have a tougher fight, but I, I feel confident that she's going to be able to build a coalition that will get her to the finish line. So I, I feel, I think it's more than just mere optimism. I think the data is showing that there's a, there's a real chance for that type of substance change to occur um, politically in both those counties. All right. Um, that's a really interesting prediction, and we're going to watch how it uh, turns out on uh, November 3rd. Um, I, we've we've only got about two minutes left in the show today, so I want to ask a what may seem to be a very naive question, and, and we're not, you're not going to have as much time to uh, answer as I wish we had. Brenda, I'll give you a quick shot, and then you a quick shot, Joe. Um, is it, again, when we start talking about specific categories of voters, whether they're African-Americans, whether they're Hispanic, Latinos, whatever, um, we tend to somehow not think of them as part of the broader community. So but what I'm, my question is very simple. Are there that many spe- issues in this election cycle that are specific to the Hispanic and Latino communities that other communities are not as interested in? Or is that a naive assumption, Brenda? Well, I wouldn't say not not interested, right? Because overall, we have the same concerns, right? We want to make sure we have a job. We want to make sure we can, you know, take care of, of our household. Um, we want to make sure that we feel safe in our communities. And uh, we, we, we just want to make sure our pocketbook issues, right, that, that, the, that the market is going well. And by that, I mean the economy, not the stock market. Um, and so those are issues that are true for any individual living in this country. Right. Um, now, there are certain communities like the Latino community and especially the subsets of Latino communities um, are affected differently and usually have a worse impact than other communities. And that's really where the conversation needs to go. Joel, you got about 30 seconds to add to that, if you'd like. I'll just say this, Bill. You know, issues are American issues, including immigration, as, as Charles alluded to. And so our issues do not differ. Our issues are part of the overall issues that are impacting communities of color uh, in America. And we want to have solutions with our partners, with our allies, to ensure that we all can achieve the American dream we fight for. I, I am so sorry that we've got to cut this conversation short. It deserves a lot more time. You are all invited back. We will find a day that we can get you all back on the show together to continue this important conversation. In the meantime, thank you, uh, Brenda. Thank you. Joel, Joel, what's the name of your podcast again? Los Politicos, lospoliticos.net. Chuck Cook, congratulations on your big court victory. We'll have you back as well. And Kevin Riley, another Thursday that I've loved being with you. That's it for us today. Um, We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, uh, stay healthy, please wear a mask, and get a flu shot.